and welcome to another episode of the Watermark Equipping Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Van Wagner, and this is my co-host, Dr. Oren Martin, the Senior Director of Equipping here at Watermark. And today, we are joined by our friend, Ethan Main, the Director of Membership. Glad to be here. We're so excited to have you here, Ethan. Okay, this is a little bit of a different episode for us today because we are talking, we've talked kind of about more general concepts in our faith, and today we're going deep on a specific topic. It's October, and we are creeping towards October 31st, which is... Reformation Day. So today we're going to talk about the Reformation. We are. And what it means and why it's important for us, why we should talk about church history. So today we are talking about the Reformation. So let's go big picture first. Oren, what is the Reformation in a nutshell? Yeah, I would say the Reformation, I mean, just to put it as simply as possible, was about happiness. It was about freedom. And it was about the future of the church. Uh, You know, one of the kind of the mottos of the Reformation was reformed and always reforming which just means shaped and always reshaped by God's Word. And that was kind of the big thing of the Reformation because God's Word had been lost, which meant the gospel had been really lost or distorted. And so the Reformation was really a recovery of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve to die, to be raised from the dead so that through trusting in Him, we can be forgiven, we can be counted righteous, we can be sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that brought a lot of joy and happiness, it brought a lot of freedom, and it really shaped the trajectory of the church. I really wasn't expecting you to say the Reformation is about happiness. Yeah, there you go. What is that? Give me two sentences on that. Yeah, I think happiness is in terms of the the freedom that Christians experience through being counted righteous before God. Okay. I mean, if, if you were to think like, say you you owed a debt to somebody that you couldn't pay, like a massive debt, that would that would bring burdens and that would bring anxiety. It would bring, I, mean, I would say, depression, which is which, which was what a lot of people experienced in this time, including, you know, Luther during his his uh, his life and others. And so, you know, infinitely greater is the debt we owe against God because we've sinned against Him. And when the gospel was really recovered in a significant way, it brought happiness because it brought freedom before God in Christ. Okay. So the Reformation was a historical event, which we'll get into the actual history and the events that were going on that brought about happiness because we recovered the gospel. Yes. Right? Perfect. Okay. So for the average Christian, Ethan, maybe you could take this. For the average Christian, this is a historical event which happened, give me the time period. 1600s. 1600s. Yeah, so, I mean, the official okay. date is 1517. So, we're several centuries removed from the Reformation. So, why, as a modern-day Christian in 2023, should I should I care about something that happened centuries ago? Why should, in general, Reformation or not, why should I care about church history? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And I think, uh, kind of to go off of what some of what was just saying, uh, we are historical people. We believe that God is providential. What I mean by that is that he's over all things. We don't just study history, but we're looking at the God of history. And so we go all the way back to the cross. It's a historical event. And then it progresses through this great family story that we have. You think of the church as a family of God. We don't just believe the Holy Spirit's active in Oren's life and in your life, right? Or my life. But the Spirit's active throughout history, too. And so the Reformation is kind of a goldmine for Protestants, especially, when we think about what uh, God was doing in the life of the church during that season. So if you're an everyday Christian now, you want to know your family history. You want to know, hey, where did I come from? How did I get to have this Bible in my hands? Those are really good things that we can kind of gather from the Reformation. Okay. I love that language, that it's part of our family history. That's what the Reformation is. Yeah. 
Um, and it's uh, important for our wa- everyday walk today. All right. So we're going to get into actually the historical events that were surrounding in the 1600s, the, the context that they were living in. So Oren, why don't you tee up for us? What were the events that led to the, act- the, the need for the Reformation or the events of the Reformation? Set the stage for us. Yeah. You know, one of the mottos of the Reformation is, is uh, after darkness, light, which is such a great phrase because— you know, I mean, we don't want to misunderstand it, but, you know, after darkness, the, the church had kind of been in darkness in the sense that it had largely lost the gospel. Uh, the good news, as we talked about, that Jesus Christ came to to save sinners. Uh, and, you know, because it had been kind of lost and the, the church had, had uh, kind of been not in a good spot, uh, that, uh, you know, God raised up people like Martin Luther and others before him to uh, to bring the light of the gospel uh, to shine uh, with clarity and with power. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, kind of in this time, you, you have, you know, decades, centuries before kind of Martin Luther came on the scene uh, where, you know, really in a sense, part of it was due to, you know, mistranslations of the Bible, you know, where repentance was translated as do penance, uh, which kind of took on that if, you know, if you were, a, you know, a church member, you could you could pay money to, you know, do less time in purgatory. Or you could pay money to, uh, to get somebody else out of purgatory, maybe to, to have less punishment. And this really became kind of capitalized on to uh, to fund, you know, the, the building of St. Saint Peter's Cathedral and all these kinds of things. And, and so really what it kind of became in a simplistic, maybe, I don't know, a vulgar way, not vulgar, um, was that you could, you could buy, you could give your money to the church and the church by virtue of its good works and it's, it's kind of the deposit of God's grace. Mm-hmm. You could then receive... Um, you know, in some sense, I don't want to say you can receive your salvation, but it's kind of like that to say it in the most extreme way. You could buy salvation. Yeah, it, 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 yes, um, at an extreme level. And, you know, and all this time, you know, the Scripture had been lost. Uh, people couldn't read Scripture in the, their own language, and, you know, it was basically translated in Latin. Priests had access to it. Some some priests could even do that. And, and so it was really just kind of the elevation of, of tradition and what the church had done. And it had really lost its way because it had lost Scripture. It had lost the gospel. And so, you know, and, and all of this, this kind of prepared the way for folks like Martin Luther to come along who who really began uh, to, to feel the, the burdens of, of, of all of that, that he couldn't do enough mm-hmm. uh, to earn favor before God, no matter how much he, you know, denied himself of, of you know, the, the, the enjoyments of the world or how much he, uh, you know, tr- tried to do as a monk. It, it could never release the burden that he had because he knew that God was holy, that God was righteous. And because he was righteous, he must therefore punish and judge sin. And, and Luther uh, w- was just really um, just under the weight of that. And that kind of prepared the way for his journey to, to find his way through Scripture and recovering the gospel through, you know, places like the Psalms and Romans to know that, that he, could be, he, he could be counted righteous before God in Christ and through mm-hmm. his righteousness. Okay. So what was it like to be an everyday lay person, an everyday Christian before the Reformation, right before. So I, I heard a little bit from you, Oren, around the concept of buying your salvation, about not having access to the scriptures. Ethan, set the stage. What what would it have been like to be in that setting um, as an everyday Christian? Yeah. <clears throat> and so Oren kind of teed some of this up, but you certainly, as an everyday Christian, you wouldn't have had uh, the Bible in your own language, much less in your own hands. You wouldn't have been able to read Scripture and uncover for yourself, hey, what does Scripture teach? 
there was a lot of trust given to uh, the church. And the church is interpreting scripture for the people. And as Oren said, sometimes not even doing that. Sometimes the priests uh, had been given their office because they were it was bought for them. You know, their, their father or their grandfather had an office in the church and then paid off someone to buy them an office in the church. And they weren't saved, much less literate in the biblical text. And so how does that affect an, a person? Uh, they're going to church and they are watching often the mass happen. And the mass is just what we would look at now and call kind of communion, like taking of the elements. They're not taking them for themselves. They're watching it happen and they're receiving, this is the teaching of the time, they're receiving grace through the, through watching that act. And so if you're thinking about how different that is to mm-hmm. our world today, is I can read scripture uh, every day. I can come and, and sing to God in my own language. I can hear teaching in my own language. They don't have any of that. And so it's very detached. You think about the, the spiritual life of someone from their daily life, it's very separate. Um, and they're just going maybe week after week to receive whatever grace they can get through what the priests are doing in the the church uh, Sunday after Sunday. And when you say the church, are we talking specifically about the Catholic church? Right. Yep. So most people, especially in Europe at this time, that's really the only church they have. Uh, it's super different landscape from what we have today mm-hmm. as a result of the Reformation. Okay. And so everyone, if you want to think about it in maybe a little bit of a simplistic way, especially in the Western part of Europe, is Catholic. Okay. Okay, great. So those were the events. That was the the setting of the stage, right? So I'm hearing people had an inability to access scriptures in their own language. That's really interesting that they are watching grace happen versus receiving it themselves. Um, who were some of the main players at that time that were kind of te- that were in um, in the beginning of the Reformation or right before it happened? Yeah, um, Ethan, do you want to answer that? Yeah, yeah I can. Yeah. Um, one that I would highlight is uh, a guy named William Tyndale. Uh, and that's a name, maybe that last name even is familiar to some people listening. Uh, Tyndale kind of was a, born around 100 years before Luther really hits the scene. He's English. And in his uh, country, they had banned the translation of the Bible into English. So everything has to be in Latin. And Tyndale doesn't like that. And he sets out for a project that he's going to translate the Bible into English. And he has this famous quote. I'll read it. I defy the Pope in all his laws. If God spare my life, many years I will cause a boy who drives the plow to know more scripture than the Pope. And so he has this vision that he uh, wants the everyday person to know scripture better than the highest office in the church at the time. And what was his country? He was from England. England. And so okay. he sets out, and uh, it's it's remarkable when you think about what he did. He wrote, uh, some scholars say he wrote more than Shakespeare did. He's writing uh, Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek, translating it all into English. And much of what becomes of the King James Bible later in the, in the 16th century is just direct copies from what Tyndale is kind of doing as a solo project. Uh, eventually, he is he's killed for uh, one of his Friends betrays him, and he gets killed for for this act. Yeah, he gets killed for translating the Bible into English. Uh, And he uh, has, as many of these guys, kind of pre-Reformation church history, kind of uh, maybe the quotes are rounded off a little bit. But the point is that a lot of them project or kind of uh, predict that uh, something's going to happen in the church uh, in the in the days to come. And toward the end of Tyndale's life, Luther's about to be uh, really on the scene in Germany. Uh, Tyndale says that um, something to the effect of a year from now, 
all throughout the English lands, the king will bow down to the, to the Bible. And a year later, after his death, every church in England has an English Bible in their church. That quickly. That quickly. It's remarkable. That's wild yeah. for that time period. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So Tyndale was one of the early—he was about 100 years before the Reformation. He yeah, died. he kind of dies right as Luther's getting onto okay, the great. scene. Okay, great. So before we get to Luther, was there any other players that are important for us to know about that are part of the Reformation? Um. Yeah, I mean, I can I can talk about uh, one other, uh, John Huss. So he's—I'll uh, I'll cover him a little quicker. He's even before Tyndale. And really what you want to remember with Huss is he's getting at a lot of the same doctrinal ideas that Luther will articulate more clearly later. So abuse of the offices in the church, uh, salvation by grace— uh, we want to be careful and not understand Huss to be a Protestant. Mm-hmm. He's very much still Catholic and trying to reform within the Catholic Church. But he sort of tees up a lot of the ideas that Luther will then read. Actually, in Luther's life, he reads Huss, and he's like, I'm amazed that this is 100 years ago. This guy's saying this stuff. How do we not read this kind mm-hmm. of thing? Um, he, too, is killed for what he's trying to teach and is excommunicated, big word. The church just says he's no longer part of the church. It happens four or five times to him during his life. And he just keeps faithfully trying to point people back to Jesus and grace through him. Okay. So the stage is set. It sounds like tension is building, right? So there are all these players who are trying to call for some level. We would probably use the word reform. I don't know that they would because we know the Reformation is coming. But they're calling for a change in the way that the church operates specifically and getting, it sounds like, getting um, Scripture into their own language and some of these other concepts, right? So we've set the stage. Now we're actually at the events of the Reformation. Yeah. What happened during that historical event that we call the Reformation? Time period, major player, spoiler alert, I've heard it's Luther. <laughs> um, what actually happened during that event? Yeah, so, you know, like Ethan said, there were forerunners to the Reformation, and there's a lot of work that's done on that. <clears throat> but I think what, what makes Luther unique is not so much what he did. I mean, you know, the, the famous story of him going to the, you know, the Wittenberg door and and taking a huge hammer and, you know, nailing it to the wall. And, you know, it's funny to, to see even art and and since then uh, portrayals of, of Luther doing that. It's like— The 95 was, Theses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, okay. the, uh, the, you know, which I think, like, it may have been just a few months before, he actually nailed 97 Theses. Oh, dear. Uh, and, so, and those were probably— What happened to the other two? Oh, those were probably more controversial. But this was just a normal thing. Like, it was not like I'm revolting against the, the Roman Catholic Church. It was really just, um, it was kind of a, in a university setting, I would say, you know, if you have faculty that like, you know, tape stuff or staple stuff to their door just for discussion, that's what people did. It was pretty common. And and so it's not this kind of this grand scene of, mm-hmm. of Luther, you know, mounting resistance and, you know, posing, you know, like he's taking a selfie with a big hammer in his hand, like looking, you know, looking at people po- posing for pictures. He was really just kind of doing what other people had done all the time uh, for discussion, right? Okay. And, uh, and and so what he wanted to discuss was not some revolutionary thing per se. It's not wasn't his intention. It was really just kind of a discussion on on how to bring reforms within the Catholic Church, uh, particularly against its uh, its abuses of of uh, you know of the sacraments of, of of doing penance of you know purchasing you know there, there's a a story about you know Tetzel was was his last name and he's probably you know one of the most famous kind of people for for taking the the abuses to the extreme mm-hmm. he was going around kind of like a like a revivalist and uh, he was saying you know to, to people who who couldn't read the Bible in their own languages who really had to, to trust their priests and trust the church traditions <clears throat> when they were, he was trying to raise money for for uh, Saint Peter's you know church basically to be built 
And uh, this famous this famous phrase, uh, a coin in the coffer springs, a soul from purgatory springs. Uh, that was a famous phrase at the time. Yeah, so you throw your tithe money, okay. your tithe money in, in the in the <laughs> coffer, right? And it rings, and you, you kind of souls. You know, you're you're buying less time for your loved ones mm-hmm. uh, out of purgatory. Okay, you know, so so you're being purged of you know your sins so that you can enter into eternal life, right? Okay, and so that really is kind of where you know it really got derailed. And, and a lot of these folks were just calling kind of for reforms within, like, the abuses. And so even at the time of, you know, October 31st, 1517, Luther, you know, didn't have this this own kind of revolutionary uh, th- you know, kind of change in his own doctrines. He was just trying to do what everybody else did and kind of bring conversations into, into, uh, into the, uh, up to the fore. So he wasn't setting out to be a hero of the faith. Not Why don't we talk no. a little bit about his background yeah. and then, like, how we got to October—what I heard is October 31st, 1517. Yeah. So, a little bit about his background, and it sounds like he, he was actually doing something really normal, and for whatever reason, it just took hold that day. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I can, I can talk briefly about his background. He really—he he, wasn't—he didn't set out to be a, a monk or a priest. Uh, I think he was going to be, like, a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, was was walking home. The kind of the famous story goes, and there was a big thunderstorm, and you know he was scared out of his lights, and basically said, you know, Lord, if you let me live, I'll I'll serve you, right? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of changed his trajectory, and so that kind of you know made him change from going to law school from, to going to the monastery, and so he began getting theological training, and and in this time, um, you know, he he really began to be resh- really changed by the Word of God as he's reading the Psalms. Um, I mean, particularly Psalms like Psalm 70, Psalm 71. He's, he's reading uh, Romans. And as he's teaching, uh, he, he begins to experience uh, kind of this unsettledness. And, uh, and, and, and you know, as he's going back kind of to the source of Scripture, which is kind of a big, a big mantra of the day is ad fontes, right? Go, go back to the sources, mm-hmm. to, the, to the fount. Uh, don't just rely on popes and priests. Don't just rely on the church tradition, but re- read Scripture for yourself. And as he's doing that and as he's teaching it, um, he, he uh, that's kind of what what led to you know wh- where he goes in terms of uh, you know October thirty first fifteen seventeen but even then and Ethan you can chime in for the next you know couple of years he's still having kind of this reformation mm-hmm. in his own heart mm-hmm. and it's not until really fifteen twenty fifteen twenty one is what most people say where he really becomes convinced of, of what we would call justification by faith alone that we are justified, we are counted righteous before God, not because of anything that we've done or we, anything we can do, but we're counted righteous before God, which is what we fundamentally need. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're kind of righteous before God. We receive a righteousness not of our own, but, but but righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ, like Philippians 3 says. Okay. And so that really is the, you know, one of the, the, the pivotal Moments, kind of in the Reformation, the at least in os. Germany, that's the big spiritual aha: is yeah. justification through grace alone. Yeah, and I think what makes Luther different is that you know his his theses were basically translated, which hadn't been done. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, into kind of the, the the vernacular of the day. I guess they had been in Latin. Nobody can read Latin. Uh, other people, but they were translated into German, and that kind of set ablaze the. You know, you get it in the people's hands, and and people are going to run with it. So that was it. Was that one of the first times that? Scripture was, or scripture or theology was made available in the vernacular. At, at least, uh, at least during that unique period period in uh, the history of the church. So, uh, as Orrin had said, it, there was just a decline. If you think about it like that, there's a decline, and and Luther starts to, and others like. I remember one of my professors in seminary said, it's not so much Reformation as it is Reformations, mm-hmm. because all throughout Europe, Luther's kind of the 
the all-star player, if you will. Uh But there's all sorts of other people in different countries doing very similar things because of that back to the sources kind of mantra. Uh, They're doing this with more things than just the Bible. They're going back and they're just trying to read, hey, what were the people in the first couple centuries of the church writing? And we might do well to read these things again. One of those people is Augustine. Uh, Luther's an Augustinian monk. And so he reads a lot of Augustine and he recognizes, oh, Back in the 5th century, the church was teaching salvation by grace through faith. Why have we lost this? Mm-hmm. Uh, Augustine was teaching that uh, all of us, we have original sin, and we need a Savior who is Jesus. And so Luther's not doing so much of like a new project where he's coming to the Bible and he's finding stuff that no one's seen. He's more just going back and recovering what the church had lost during that period. And it was happening all over Europe, yeah. is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about Switzerland, France, I mean— all What do you think it. was happening? Do you think just the spirit was at work? Or I mean, was it just, like, what—why is it happening simultaneously? Like, it sounds like probably to people who are not connected with one another. Yeah. Is that right? What do you attribute that to? One of the greatest gifts God has given the church uh, in—when we zoom out to how he started, uh, he's providential over time— uh, would be the printing press. So mm-hmm. I think it's 14, maybe you know this date, 1494 maybe, uh, the printing press, the Gutenberg printing press uh, becomes a thing. And people can now uh, not just have to rely on a because at this time, monks are the only people who are translating works. And okay. so that's really one of the main things a monk is doing is, is all day long, they're writing out transcripts of new works. Well, you get a printing press, and now what might take years to get into a 1,000 copies can take a week, and then people can read Luther's theses because it's the printing press. And so uh, that's one of the coolest things about the Reformation for me is that God's using seemingly very—I'm um, not even sure if the guy who made the printing press was a Christian, but you look at the God who's over history, and he's using the printing press to get all these resources out into the hands of the people— And so that's one of the main factors. And then I think the other one is we can even see this with the church today. Uh, People want the word. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you just think about the discontentment and and the the people, uh, the experience of people, they're starving for the word of God. And um, uh, think about texts that we now know is commonplace, but like Isaiah 55, uh, the the word of the Lord is not going to return void. Mm -hmm. And so you just see God in a supernatural way, kind of unique time in history, putting the word back into the hands of people. So the word is starting to get into the hands of the people. And so you have all these leaders all over Europe, of which we mostly know Luther is what I'm hearing as kind of the all-star player, but there were church leaders all over that were starting to go back to the original text. And I'm hearing even first century authors to specifically recover a doctrine of justification by faith alone. Grace alone, excuse me. Yeah, that's yeah. perfect. And that right? you know, yeah, and it's just you know, it's important to you know, so this doesn't just seem kind of theoretical and just a bunch of historical kind of brute facts, but what a gift we have in God's word. I mean, my word. Uh the fact that God has given us his word, we don't have to trust a priest, we don't have to trust uh, we don't put our faith ultimately in those things. Like God has given us such a gift, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And I think of Peter's words when he, you know, when Jesus is is teaching them, and and you know, he's te- he's saying some hard things about if they want to follow Christ, right? To to leave their lives behind, to to follow him, and and he looks at his disciples, and and you know, he says, "Do you do you wish to leave?" And and Peter, you know, has that confession in John six of, of where else do we go? You have the words of eternal life, and so you know, it would be kind of lost if we just didn't say like what what a 
what a gift we have to be thankful that the Lord cares about us so much that he's given us his word. Uh, and is you know we have it translated in English and we have it translated in all kinds of languages so, so that we, we can be saved by God's grace through trusting in Christ alone as well. And uh, you know we, we shouldn't take that for granted. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, so on October 31st, 1517, is that the day of the 95 Theses? Yeah. Was, it was Luther nailed them to the wall. As the story goes. As the story goes. Yeah. And so that's, for whatever reason, that's the event we think of. Yeah. But what I'm hearing you say is that actually it was a series of events over, what, a three to five year time period? Yeah. Right. What else? So are there any other events happening around that time period that we haven't covered? Uh, I mean, you know, within decades following, you have, you know, Luther in 1517 and kind of his his you know, progress and, and, uh, and understanding the gospel more fully. Uh, and then you have, you know, Calvin, you have, you know, Zwingli. I mean, th- these are, you know, in Switzerland, uh, you know, Calvin's in, uh, in Geneva. Uh, Zwingli's in Switzerland. I mean, you have other guys that are kind of in other places kind of doing the same thing. That mm-hmm. really, they were all Roman Catholic as well and underwent kind of the same uh, kind of reformation individually, personally, as they as they learned the gospel more fully and, and did the same things kind of in their context that Luther was doing in Germany. Okay. Got it. Would you add anything to that, Ethan? Yeah, no, I would just say we don't have to get into all the details of it, but even kings, and and this is, again, a a very different time from what we live in now, uh, different kings over different places, uh, like in England, um, for the first time you have Protestant kings who are, like I said, putting more Protestant principles back into uh, the life of the Church of England because everyone in in that time is part of kind of the same superstructure of churches. And then you kind of have this uh, all throughout England. I think we'll talk about it potentially later, but there's also kind of counter-reformation from Mm -hmm. the Roman Catholic Church and what they're doing in, um, yeah, in response to these things that Luther and others are putting before them. uh, There's sort of throughout most of the rest of the 16th century uh, back and forth between what do we keep, what do we come back and kind of double down on as the Catholic Church. Um, But so, so let's go there. So let's have, we've covered what led to it, what happened during it, what was the effect we'll do right after and then today, eventually. But like right after in the centuries following, what effect did it have on the church? Um, I heard counter-reformations from the mm-hmm. Catholic Church. What else? Uh, other things I would say, uh, we've, we've kind of hinted at it in different ways, but there is a recovery of the Bible in worship. Um, the, the worship experience begins to move uh, away from kind of that I observe and I watch this thing happen and, and more uh, still might look kind of foreign to what we do today, mm-hmm. but there still is a lot more uh, preaching of the word, singing of the word, receiving. Now, the, the people of the church are receiving the sacrament uh, as opposed to watching someone do it. And then uh, from the Catholic church, they do respond to this idea of justification by faith alone. Uh, and at the Council of Trent, uh, the Council of Trent lasts quite a while, 15 years. Yeah. They meet three different times, I think. 1540s. Yeah, all the way into the 15th. That's another historical event, the Council of Trent. This is all the Catholic kind of bishops and popes get together, and they decide uh, how do we respond to what's been happening throughout Europe for the last 30 or 40 years. They basically want to put a finger in Luther's eye and some of the other reformers. Oh, wow. To say it in fun terms. Okay, great. So we have have the Church of England and the Catholic Church, right, trying to work these things out in the centuries that follow. And the, and the Council of Trent is part of the Catholic Church's response. Yes. Okay. And so what – continue, Ethan, what happens? Yeah, the, at the Council of Trent, uh, there's a lot there that we could we could kind of camp out on. But one of the main things they do is they 
articulate basically that if anyone believes uh, in justification by faith alone, let them be anathema or let them be accursed. Like they, they, to Orrin's point, they look Luther straight in the face and they say, uh, we're not teaching that. Um, and that's really what, uh, even today, the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of modern uh, Protestants is, does my Catholic friend believe mm-hmm. that if I believe in justification by faith, I'm accursed. I can't actually be saved because that's not what the Roman mm-hmm. Catholic Church kind of um, established at the Council of Trent as— What would you say to that answer that question? Yeah, I would say, um, one, I would ask my Catholic friend if they actually could see that in Scripture because Scripture seems to overwhelmingly point to justification by faith as uh, good news and uh, very clear in Scripture in that just like, uh, you know, someone in the Catholic Church uh, is saved by Jesus alone, so too is someone in a Protestant church. Mm-hmm. That would be kind of the way I would answer that at yeah. a simple level. Okay. Or and how would you answer that question? Yeah. Uh, similarly, I mean, you, you know, you do have a little a little bit of the softening of language from the strong language of Trent, and, you know, in the 16th century to, you know, fast forward to the 20th century, kind of Vatican I, Vatican II, where you don't say necessarily they're anathema or accursed or they're not saved, but mm-hmm. they're maybe like, I think the language is estranged brethren or, you know, okay. sisters. Uh, they're still not one of us, but it's it's, it's a little bit softer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what I would say, you know, like along what Ethan said is, you know, to, to stick to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, you know, my wife's family, many of whom are Catholic. Um, you know, I it, the way that we talk to them is, is by by sticking to are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because they've been going to a Catholic church in South Louisiana for all their life, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, I'll just say in terms of talking to Roman Catholics, that's the good news of the gospel. And to, to stick there to, to and to not deviate from that and to not get distracted mm-hmm. by, by anything else. Okay. Awesome. Anything else um, that happened immediately following? So I'm hearing the response from the Catholic church immediately following from the Reformation before we get to, um, hey, what is the effect of the Reformation in our lives today? Yeah. Yeah, I would just say, I mean, like Ethan said earlier, you know, it's just, it's just I think it's worth coming back to is, is not just the gospel, but, you know, how, how that has effects in the church. Uh, the, the goodness of, of God's people gathering together for uh, the, the preaching of the word. Uh, the the hearing of the word uh, in in your own language, mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, the the seeing of the word right through uh, through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, through the singing of the word. I mean that was really a, you know a, a big part of the Reformation. It's really you know putting the word in in the hands of the people in various forms right through preaching through singing, uh, and you know it really was a. You know, to us, that's just kind of like, oh yeah, that's just what we do, right? We gather on Sundays mm-hmm. at Watermark, and we we hear the teaching of the word, and we we sing, and we you know see people baptized, and we take the the Lord's Supper, uh, and you know those are wonderful gifts. I think maybe sometimes we can take it uh, take for granted, but that wasn't happening at the time. Mm-hmm. And you know what gifts they are is when we talk about the Reformation, it's really the recovery of the gospel and the recovery of of just God's gift of the church. Mm-hmm. And so you know I, I'm mindful of that as we, you know, come on Sunday mornings uh, to, to gather with our church of what a gift that is to be able to sing uh, the songs of the faith, 
to, to hear God's word preached in, in powerful ways, you know, and, and you know this, but, you know, it's God's word still works. I just had the privilege of baptizing my two oldest kids uh, a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. because the, the Lord works through his word by his spirit and opens their eyes to behold the knowledge of the, you know, the, 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 the beauty of the Lord, right? Mm-hmm. To see Jesus Christ uh, in, in what he's done for sinners. And that's, that's such a gift. And so you have all of these things kind of happening in the in the Reformation that that still are with us today. All right, so let's fast forward to today. Why is the Reformation important to our daily lives as believers? Yeah, yeah. At least one reason I would say is as we've talked through some today, uh, we we recognize that God is providential over history, and that's really good news for us. And so as believers today, both practically, like during our individual lives when things are happening that we don't totally understand, hey, what's God doing here? Uh, We have a rich tradition of people just being faithful with what's in front of them for the day and letting God do the rest of the work. And the other thing I would say is the Reformation rightly put uh, the church and really tradition uh, under the authority of Scripture. It would be wrong to read the Reformation and think that I only need my Bible. Mm -hmm. We actually do have this rich history and it's it's a joy and it's fun to learn about other Christians who've gone before us. We just don't want to elevate that to above scripture. And then the same with the church. The church is really comes out of what we see in scripture. And so we want to uh, make sure what we're doing as a church is under kind of the authority of what we see in scripture. And so for Christians today, uh, as we see things in the church, we want to just make sure we want to study scripture and say, hey, is that uh, in line with what God would have from his word? Mm-hmm. Uh, making sure the priorities of Scripture are the priorities of kind of the gathered church. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll say, you know, in addition to what Ethan said, you know, it's really captured in, in you know, what's come to be known as the five solas of the Reformation. The five solas. What are yeah. those? So it just means like the five alones in some sense, right? And it's and it's uh, by, by faith alone, you're saved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, by faith in Christ, it's by God's grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's for God's glory, and we know that because of Scripture, ultimately, right? So Scripture's our ultimate authority. There's no Pope. There's no other church tradition. Scripture's our final authority. Uh, and we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, mm-hmm. right? Not through anything we've done, but by what Christ has done through his life and death and resurrection. So so the five solas are by grace alone, yep. grace, faith alone, yep. Christ, Christ by Christ through Christ alone. Yeah, for God's glory. For God's glory, and then scripture a- according alone. to Scripture. Yeah. And those five solas came from the Reformation. Yeah, I mean, they they kind of encapsulated it, right? Luther didn't sit, sit down and write the five solas, but mm-hmm. it came to kind of capture what they were what they were really living for, right, okay. and doing all of their work for. And I think that's really important, right? As Ethan said, because we want to keep what's essential, essential, right? Namely, the gospel. I love a story, you know, Luther, you know, he would teach almost every day. Uh, for hours, he would teach through Scripture. And one of his one of his congregants came to him one day and said, why, why, do you, why do you teach and preach the same thing every day? All we hear about is the gospel. Every day, why do you keep doing it? And Luther says, because we need to hear it every day. Mm-hmm. Because as not and that's you know the gospel is not just for unbelievers, right? We can often have a very simplistic view of the gospel is Jesus died for you, you know, to pay your penalty. Trust in Him. Now go live a life of works, right? Mm-hmm. Serve your church and do this and do that. We know the gospel is just as much, if not more, for Christians than it is for non-Christians because it is it's the power of God for our salvation from from faith to faith, right? From beginning to end, from top to bottom. Uh, and so, you know, I, I need to hear every day, not just that Jesus paid for my penalty uh, because of my sin against him, but, but Jesus actually lived the life I couldn't live. He fulfilled the law 
So the Christian life is not by my doing fundamentally. It's by trusting and resting in what Christ has done and living out of that. Mm -hmm. And that's empowering and freeing. And we need to hear that all the time. I need to hear that all the time. Okay. So I'm hearing for believers today, we should know about the Reformation. A, because as we started today, it's part of an essential part of our family history. But Ethan, from you, that it puts Scripture in its proper place Mm -hmm. as the authority and our guide— um, and then from you, it also gave us some essentials in how we understand the gospel, which yeah. is essential for living. Yeah, and yeah, it's so important. And I, I have to say one more thing. What is the one more thing you have to say? Uh, if you are a woman listening to this podcast, Caitlin, you are. I am, yes. And uh, Thank you. Yes, I, I want to give credit where credit <laughs> is due. Uh, I, I love the fact that, that the Reformation is just, we talk about Luther and Calvin and all these guys, uh, which is great, but they're also some— remarkable women of the Reformation that that don't often get talked about and are being talked about more. So there's books and articles and podcasts mm-hmm. on women of the Reformation. And, you know, you think about, you know, Luther's wife. I mean, Luther wouldn't be the man that he was apart from Katie, his wife. I mean, they had an amazing relationship. And, I mean, there's so, so many stories about, I mean, Luther called Katie his rib, right? The <laughs> one who was by his side and everything uh-huh. he did. And there's a story about Luther. You know, he just kind of had become depressed, and, and Katie came in one morning, and she was dressed in, like, all, like, mourning clothes, right? Uh-huh. And he was like, who died? And Katie was like, you did. And, you know, it was kind of a funny way to say, like, Remember the gospel, right? Yes. You, you don't have to be, you, you, you know, you don't have to, to sink into depression, right? Mm-hmm. And so the Lord used Katie and, and Luther's life to, to remind him of the glorious truths of the gospel. Same thing with Calvin and his wife. I mean, you know, if, if you fast forward kind of, you know, there's a, a, a poet named Anne Bradstreet who kind of came out of the, you know, Reformation Puritan into the Americas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she she wrote wonderful poetry that really, uh, you know, out of the Reformation that that uh, are, is beautiful. So, you know, there are many women who, uh, you know, loved theology, who loved the gospel, uh, and who wanted to teach the gospel to other women and teach the gospel to their children and, and, and really be agents of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, if you're a woman listening to the podcast, um, man— it, that's a good thing, right? Theology, yeah. and the, that's not just reserved for men. That's that's for, for you too, mm-hmm. and uh, and the church needs needs you to uh, to to love it and to pass it down to those who are around you. That's awesome. Any other final thoughts on the Reformation, Ethan? Yeah. Warren? The last thing I would say uh, is that hey, we want to understand the Reformation. Hopefully, this this podcast is helpful for mm-hmm. folks at home listening. We don't want to ever worship the Reformation. That we, as a yeah. church, as a Protestant church especially, we're constantly reforming. And there's things the reformers get wrong. If you do take the time to read through kind of Luther's life and works, you're going to see things that you rightfully should disagree mm-hmm. with. Uh, Luther's not Jesus, and other reformers are not Jesus. And mm-hmm. so we want to know the Reformation. We want to understand it. But we want to also understand that it's in a particular context, and they're going to get some stuff wrong. Just like for us today, we want to understand, uh, hey, what are the issues of, the, of our day and for the church? and uh, seek God's word for them, uh, and then find wisdom throughout the church history uh, kind of at, at large. Hey, where can we go and see, has this happened before? Where, what did uh, Christians do before when they were faced with this issue? Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's so much good in the Reformation. We just want to be careful we don't worship it as we got to go back to just how they did it in every single way in the 16th century. Awesome. Yeah, and I think that's it's such a good word. And, and you know, for us at Watermark, you know, a good question to ask is how, how can we— better be ordered by God's Word. Uh, and so that everything we do, I'm thinking just maybe our Sunday morning gathering, how everything we do 
uh, is is uh, makes the gospel central and and does everything we can to to make the word of God as crystal clear as we possibly can make it and not to do anything that distracts from that word mm-hmm. uh, as it's you know preached faithfully as it's sung right even in the songs that we sing we want the gospel to be clear um, and, and the the things that we read when we read the Apostles' Creed when we take the Lord's Supper, right? That's that's ordered around the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and and what God has done for us in our salvation. We we want everything we do as we gather together on Sundays to be to be ordered by the Word of God, so that we can most clearly receive the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So in that way, we're always reforming, always reforming, or conforming, maybe yes. to the Spirit. Yes, and if and anything so- distracts or takes away or minimizes it, get rid of it. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank y'all for joining us for this episode of the Watermark Equipping Podcast. We will see you next time.